I'm going to ask us to use our imagination. I'm going to present a bit of a, a hypothetical, but um, we're going to have a character. But first, we need a name for our character. So somebody help me out. Somebody, the first name I hear, I heard, well, he said Joe, but I heard Billy Bob. I think we've got to use Billy Bob. You know, William Robert, right, is his official name. So <laughs> I don't know how to get through it now, Rebecca. Thank you for that. Yeah. We'll talk about Billy Bob. That gives us a whole different context for the story, doesn't it? No. So Billy Bob is, let's say that he's a sophomore in college. In the year, well, it's December of the year 2001. And Billy Bob hears from his friends about the, the new big movie that's come out called The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Someone's familiar with it. Billy Bob was not. Billy Bob, uh, of course, had heard that there's subsequent movies that come out after it, and that maybe it was based on some books, but he had never read the books. He's not familiar with the story, but all his friends were talking about this movie, and so it's, it's over Christmas break. He's had a break from school, and so he decided he was going to go and catch a matinee. Well, immediately, Billy Bob becomes immersed into this world of Middle Earth, this world that's some, in some ways similar to his, but in other ways felt very old. It had different creatures in it, like elves and dwarves and goblins and something called hobbits. But Billy Bob was especially taken and impressed by the wizard called Gandalf the Grey. Gandalf was a bit of the mentor figure in the movie, a bit of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi or the Yoda figure to one named Frodo Baggins. But Gandalf wasn't the type of mentor just to give some good advice and send Frodo on his way. He would actually join him on his journey along with seven others. And here's the deal. I, got, I have to give some spoilers, but you've only had 20 years to see the movies and even longer to read the book, so I don't, I'm not going to apologize, okay? So the plot of the movie is that Frodo is to take this one ring of power that corrupts everyone who owns it, right? He, ha he has to take this ring of power to where it was created in order to destroy it. And they would have to take it to Mount Doom, right? But he would face obstacles and need help getting there. So Gandalf joined Frodo on his journey. But as they're passing through the mines of Moria, they run into this terrifying demon-like fire creature called the Balrog. And Gandalf knew about this Balrog, and he said to all his friends, we got to run. So they ran for it. But eventually they get to this kind of stony earthen bridge where they all pass except Gandalf eventually turns and makes a stand against the Balrog. And he takes his staff and he says a well-known line from the movie. A, basically he's quoting lots of high school chemistry teachers before a final exam and says to them, You shall not pass. And he sticks his staff onto the bridge so that as soon as the Balrog takes a step toward him, the, the bridge falls and collapses underneath the creature and the creature falls into the darkness. And, well, just when you think the battle is over, 
a fiery whip comes up from the darkness, catches Gandalf around the ankles, drags him down, and as he catches himself on the ledge, he gives one last glimpse at his friends and says, Fly, you fools. And then Gandalf himself falls into the darkness. Well, let's just say at this moment, Billy Bob was not amused. Gandalf was his favorite character. And you're going to kill him off just like that? He stands up, puts what's left of his popcorn into the trash receptacle and quietly exits the theater. Now, for those of us familiar with the story, what do we want to say to dear William Robert? Big mistake. Yeah, don't. Not yet. It's not over, you know. Because in the second movie, what do we learn? Spoiler alert. Gandalf, yeah, that's not the end of Gandalf. He won. He, he didn't just fall. He went to go battle the Balrog, and he won. He was victorious, and he experienced this sort of resurrection and returned as not Gandalf the Grey, but Gandalf the White, even more powerful than he was before. So what Billy Bob did was similar to the illustration that Aaron offered to us. He was so fixated on one portion of the picture that he missed the big picture. He confused the moment for the story. And sometimes in life, we do the same. If you've been around Apex for a time, you're familiar with something called the hero's journey. Uh, it's basically the basic framework of almost every story out there. There's a call where a hero recognizes there's, there's a need, there is an obstacle to overcome, there's someone to rescue, there is a villain to overcome. And that leads the hero to the valley of challenge, the various obstacles that the hero must overcome. But then from there, it's completion. It's the happily ever after portion of the story. And in some ways, this is our story as well, but there are moments in our valley of challenge where we experience them and we're simply not sure how completion is going to be possible. We're not sure how we're going to get out of it. And sometimes these moments are sudden shocks. They're like the earthquakes of our lives. A miscarriage. A cancer diagnosis. The sudden unexpected loss of a job. Or sometimes they're not sudden jolts, but they're these long seasons of more like, rather than earthquakes, these erosions, this slow stripping away of life, more these chronic conditions, these long-term illnesses. It's being the parent of a child who is wayward and estranged from you and Jesus. It's being the child of an aging parent and with, you know, um, both physical and mental challenges as, you know, people age. And as a child, you're just figuring out how to um, come alongside them. It can be difficult. You could be in, the, in a season of your marriage where uh, communicating and understanding each other and agreeing can be difficult and you simply, you feel stuck. But not only is that true of challenges we face individually, we also face challenges within our culture. 
the very sharp divisions we have in our culture, uh, the political corruption, media manipulation, cancel culture. There's, there's so many difficult things as a culture we experience. And at times, we can become so fixated on these things, so fixated on the things in our individual lives and fixated on the things of our culture that we can easily confuse the moment for the story, right? I recently read a post that, um, that claimed that every age group is experiencing imp- an improved mortality rate except for young adults between the ages of 25 and 34. That in spite of medical advances, the mortality rate of 25 to 34 is essentially the same as it was in 1953. And the culprits are drugs, alcohol, and suicide. What story do these young people believe that they are living in? It seems that whatever story they're believing, it's a story without hope, a story without meaning, and a story without a future. But what is the story that we're living in according to the Bible? Well, if you'll indulge me. The story of the Bible is that God took nothingness and made something. He took chaos and created order. And he created a creature in his image to partner with him in giving shape to creation and to rule creation on his behalf. The creature would be called humanity. And the situation here is described by a Hebrew word, shalom. And shalom means more than just peace, but it's wholeness and completeness, everything in order, everything as it was made to be. So far, so good. But eventually an enemy comes and deceives and tempts humanity, and humanity decides they don't want this vocation that God had given them, but they want to rule on their own behalf. They want to define right and wrong for themselves. And so now shalom is broken. The world is plunged into chaos, and death and sin is now part of the world. And now they would be evicted from sacred space and away from closeness with God. But God decided he wasn't satisfied to leave things like this. He wanted to recover shalom, and so he formed a relationship with a man who would be called Abraham. And God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In other words, through you, I'm bringing back shalom. But Abraham's family would grow, and they would become the nation of Israel. And it was through them God would bring back shalom. But they were to be a light to the nations. But over the centuries, they, like humanity in the beginning, rebelled against God and worshipped the gods of the nations. And so they too were evicted from the space that God had given them. They were sent into exile in hopes of that, that them hitting rock bottom would allow them to come to their senses. But during this time, the prophets spoke of a coming king, a Messiah, who would come and rule over Israel and rule over the nations and bring back shalom. And that king would one day come, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus came 
healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and raising the dead. He came proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign is here once again, and he intends to rule his good creation through a partnership with human beings. And Jesus befriended sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the poor. He had little regard for, the, for man-made traditions and man-made rules. And this, of course, upset the religious leaders who were supposed to be pointing Israel to God. But instead, they were jealous of Jesus and had him executed. And his crucifixion was his enthronement. As he, as king, represented his people, and he, he bore the penalty of their sins. But he took, when he was buried, he took sin to the grave and left it there, because on the third day, he defeated death by resurrecting. And he appeared to his followers, and he commissioned them to do the things that he did and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven to be with the Father, entered God's space. But in the meantime, the Spirit of God would come and indwell his followers, enabling them to do the things that Jesus did and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And so here we are today, the same Spirit and the same mission. And one day, Jesus will return to the earth. And there will be a resurrection of all people, a resurrection of the unrighteous to everlasting judgment and condemnation, and a resurrection of those who belong to Jesus to everlasting life, to live with him. God will dwell with them. He will be their God, and they will be his people, and they will reign with him forever and ever in a state of shalom. How's that for a story? That's a story that gives hope. That's a story that gives meaning. That's a story that gives a future. That's a story that we all need, and that's a story that 25 to 34-year-olds need. But let's face it. Even those of us who believe that story can sometimes get fixated on the small picture and on the small moments. Isn't that right? Even though we can easily get that answer right on a test of what is the story of the world, there are moments where functionally it's as if we're living in a different story. We can become more like Epicureans. We'll meet the Epicureans in Acts chapter 17, but a basic belief of the Epicureans is that if the gods do exist, maybe they created the world, but they're far off, they're distant, they're not necessarily concerned with the day-to-day details of the earth, and they're certainly not interested in answering prayer. I believe that Thomas Jefferson considered himself an Epicurean, which might be why he edited the miraculous parts out of his own personal Bible. I would argue that the average American is, whether they would call themselves this or not, but they're somewhat... Epicurean-ish. I know that in challenges in my life, again, even though intellectually I believe in the story that I have just, I've just given you, but with sometimes in certain challenges, I can be a functional Epicurean. God help me. But it seems that there are even moments in the scriptures where uh, for God's people, they, they, they kind of sometimes struggle with a sense of his presence. I think of in the book of Judges, in chapter 6, we read about Gideon. Um, the, 
the nation of Israel is oppressed by the Midianites. And so we find Gideon, and he's threshing wheat in a wine press. It's meaning he's, he's hiding from the Midianites. And so suddenly, an angel of the Lord comes and says, you know, God is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, well, if God is with us, why is all this happening? And so where are God's acts that we have heard from our fathers of when he delivered them from Egypt? This is not my experience of God. But eventually as things progressed in the life of Gideon, he would see that he is part of a much bigger story than he could imagine. Which brings us to um, what we read in Acts chapter 12. We read about uh, King Herod. This is Herod Agrippa, Agrippa I. And Agrippa, it seems, he had become friends with a number of those who would eventually become the emperor of Rome. He became friends with Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. And because of this, he was given a good-sized portion of land to rule over, uh, similar to that of his grandfather, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one in the early uh, Gospel of Matthew who sought the life of the child Jesus. But Agrippa was also related to uh, the Herod uh, who was part of the trial of Jesus between, you know, as Jesus traveled between Pilate and Herod. That's Herod Antipas. Agrippa was Herod Antipas's nephew and also brother-in-law. I'll let you do the family tree math on that. Uh, but Agrippa's job as a client king... Of, uh, within the Roman emperor was to keep the peace in Israel. And his best chance to keep the peace was to keep the Jews happy. And one way for him to keep the Jews happy, eventually became, was to persecute Christians. So when he had James, the brother of John, arrested and executed, he saw that his approval rating went up. So he said, well, I can do this all day. So he went and he had Peter arrested. What do you suppose the church was thinking and feeling in this moment? Our, our leaders are being arrested and executed. You know, the, these people, these men who were part of Jesus' inner circle, if that can happen to them, what does that mean for us? They could have given in to hopelessness and despair, but it says that they prayed. And we'll get to that. We'll get to prayer in a minute, but first, let's find Peter. So Peter's in jail. He has 16 guards assigned to him, four groups of four, and he is chained to two guards. And what is he doing when we find him? He's sleeping. Now, you really got to hand it to Peter, who can sleep at the most interesting times. As we see, saw in the Gospels, Peter sleep the night that Jesus was arrested. He kept falling asleep. But to his credit, he slept even as, him, as he himself was here arrested and in jail. Like the, the likelihood was is that he was going to be executed the next day. Could you sleep? I don't know about you, but I'm not sleeping. What was it that allowed Peter to sleep? Did he learn to imitate Jesus? As we have seen Jesus asleep in a boat during a storm, 
unbothered by the chaos around him, had Peter learned that kind of peace? Perhaps Peter had a grasp of the story. And we see, as he writes in his epistle in 1 Peter, he's writing to who he addresses as the exiles, a group of Christians who are persecuted and scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Where is Peter's focus? He's not focused so much on their persecution that he himself is experiencing, and nor is he focused on the immorality that's rampant throughout the pagan culture in which they live. He was focused on the story. Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to all of our moments. So here he is asleep, chained to two guards, and suddenly an angel comes and strikes him. Strikes him hard enough to wake him up. Wake up, Peter. It's time to go. And it's interesting because remember, this, this is happening during Passover, and so in one regard, it's like, you know, get your robe on, get your sandals on. It's, it's you know, you've got to get your clothes so you can leave. But we remember Passover, how the people were to be dressed during Passover. They were to have their belts around them, and they were to have their staff in their hand, and they were to have their sandals on their feet. Get ready for Passover, Peter, because your liberation is at hand. But my favorite part of this all is, it says Peter wasn't sure if this was real or if he was dreaming. So, so this is his chains fall off, and I can almost, I'm trying to picture him. He's just like, I mean, just, it's almost like, is he feeling his way around? It's like he's not even sure. I just kind of imagine him drifting away, following the ghost of Christmas past, and he's just kind of, just kind of floating along. And they get past the guards, which makes you wonder, did they have Frodo's ring of invisibility? I don't know, I don't know. But they get past the guards, but then suddenly this large iron gate opens by itself, and Peter again just like, I don't really know what's going on, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. Now, Peter knew that um, he wasn't going to be able to stay in Jerusalem. You know, Agrippa was not going to take this lying down, going like, oh, you're a slippery one. No, we see Agrippa's reaction. He killed the guards who, you know, who were responsible here. Um, so Peter knew that he had to go. But first, he wanted to go and let those who were concerned with him know that the Lord had done this great thing. So he goes to the house of the mother of John Mark. This is um, Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And we know by tradition, um, Mark got a lot of his source for his Gospel from Peter. But Peter knocks on the door, and the people are there, they're praying. They're praying earnestly for Peter, but they, they send a servant girl named Rhoda to go answer the door. And she hears the voice of Peter, and she rejoices, 
She goes back and tells him, Peter's at the door. And now this is where we get into almost, it's almost like British sketch comedy level. I mean, this is, some, this is hilarious. Like, here they are, they're, they're praying for Peter, they're praying for Peter. Rhoda comes and says, Peter's at the door. Shh, don't interrupt us, we're praying for Peter. Peter's at the door. They come up with all sorts of theories. She's lost her mind. They treated her like they treated the women after the resurrection. Ah, you're seeing things. You're, you've lost your mind. But then they say, oh, well, maybe she did see something. You know, maybe it's Peter's angel. Whatever that means. You know, it could be something like corresponding to Peter's spirit or some sort of spiritual being that looks like Peter, which they had that sort of belief back then. Who knows? But the last thing they thought, they came up with all sorts of theories, but the last thing they thought was possible was Peter was at the door. And what were they doing? Praying for Peter. The last thing they were expecting was that God would actually hear them. I mean, what, were they, what else were they praying? Lord, give Peter a good ending. Let him shout freedom as the axe comes down on his head, like Braveheart or something. Like what? Give Peter the courage? No, they're praying for Peter. They're praying for salvation here. And they get it. And it was the last thing they were expecting to come to their door. And we remember again that this is Passover. And we remember the Passover, of course, in the book of Exodus. Early on in the book of Exodus, it says that the people cried out and groaned because of their harsh slavery. And that God heard them. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the people cry out. God hears them. And they were liberated. Now here in Acts, the people cry out. God hears them. Peter is liberated. And so as we think about our hero's journey, we remember that, you know, throughout most hero's journeys, that the hero is often given a gift for his journey for, or her journey. Uh, it's usually a sword or a lightsaber, something like that. What we are given, one of the things we are given is prayer. Prayer is a shield and a sword and a communication device for us along on our hero's journey. Now, there's all sorts of questions that this can bring about. Like, does it really matter whether or not the people were praying? I mean, couldn't God have simply saved Peter if he wanted to? Of course, God can do what he wants. But remember, God created the world in such a way, he, he created people to partner with him in his image, to rule in his behalf. God often uses means. And human beings and our prayers are sometimes the means that God uses in order to exercise his power in the earth. He doesn't have to. And it doesn't work like, Oh, we, ha we have to be sure that we have enough Christmas spirit so that Santa's sleigh will fly. It's not that kind of thing. But for whatever reason, God ordains to use the means of prayer 
for his activity in the world. But this, of course, then brings about a tension. And that's that the people prayed and Peter was liberated. But what about James? Were people not praying for James? It almost seems unthinkable that they weren't praying for James. So why did God respond to these prayers one way, but to these prayers seemingly in another way? Honest answer? I have no idea. I don't know. But here's what we can't say. We can't say that God didn't care for James or God didn't love James. That, I mean, exhibit A of that is Jesus' death on the cross for James. God absolutely cared for James, so it's not about God's indifference for James. We also shouldn't go the David Hume route. David Hume was a philosopher who, picking up some older Greek philosophy, he, he proposed that if there is a God, because of the suffering in the world, God either... You know, the biblical God can exist because the biblical God is both good and powerful, but because of suffering, it could be because God isn't good because he doesn't want to do anything about the suffering. Or maybe he is good, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. He's either evil or impotent. We shouldn't go that route because we can think of that in terms of our prayers. Well, maybe God's not good enough or powerful enough to answer my prayers. We might think that God isn't wise enough to answer my prayers. That's one of the difficult aspects of humanity, isn't it? Thinking that we're wiser than God. But sometimes, when God doesn't answer the prayers that we ask him to, in the way that we ask him to, we do learn that God is wiser than us. We don't get the job or opportunity we're asking for. We don't marry a certain person that we're dating at one time, even though we're praying for it and praying for it and praying for it, but years later down the road, when it doesn't happen, we think, yeah, God, you got that one right. I had a conversation years ago um, with somebody I worked with, not here at Apex, a different job, and he said, look, um, things are getting a bit philosophical, and I was trying to keep up, and he said, he, he, knew I was a, uh, he knew that I'm a Christian. He said that even if it all turns out to be true, even if Jesus comes back on the cloud and the angels and all that, if, if what the Bible says is true, I still won't bow down. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, because he would have some explaining to do. He would have to explain why he allowed all the evil and suffering in the world. And I said to him, well, well, I get that, but, but in your premise, you said that if it all turns out to be true, if what the Bible says is true about Jesus' return and how, you know, the flow of history, wouldn't, what the Bible, wouldn't it also be true what the Bible says about his goodness and his wisdom and his right to order reality? He said, I never thought about it like that. And we, and we learn from like the book of Job, at the end of it, God doesn't give Job any kind of philosophical reasoning for the suffering. But he does say that, look, this is all way too complicated for you to understand. The world's complex, 
and you simply do not have the vantage point. But here's the deal. You don't need to understand. You don't need clarity. You need to trust. And if we have a solid grasp on the story, what the story is, and we can see that within that story, God is good, God is wise, God is powerful, and we can trust him. And I know that that's not easy, but we have to have a grip of the story. I don't understand how it all works. I don't understand how prayer works, really. But one of the more helpful things was said once by a a man named William Temple. William Temple said, all I know is that when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't pray, they don't happen. Anyone in here here want to see more coincidences? You're going to have to pray. James says, not the James here, the writer of the book of James, the brother of our Lord, you don't have because you don't ask. And that when you ask, you don't ask with the right motives. There are three things that we learn about prayer from this passage, or three things that um, we, we could take away from it. The first is um, pray corporately, meaning pray with others. The people came together to pray. It's absolutely important that you pray individually and build in, in intimacy with God, but there's something about praying with others that reminds you of the story, that reminds you, it kind of stirs you up and spurs you on to pray. You're reminded, yes, that's true. As others are praying, yes, that's true. Sometimes you might come and your arms feel too heavy to lift, but the prayers of others can lift your arms and allow you to pray with boldness and with strength. So it's good to to pray with others. Next, to pray with others. Next, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. It says the church was praying earnestly for Peter. This is praying using the language of dependence, saying, Lord, we absolutely depend on you to do this for us. There's no other power, nowhere else we can go to, but God, we depend completely on you. And finally, Pray expectantly. Pray with expectation. Of course, that wasn't modeled for us in this passage, per se. (laughs) They got the last thing they were expecting. But I think that sometimes we don't pray expectantly because we're afraid to be let down. But we should pray trusting that God is going to change the circumstance or he's going to change you. to wrap up just thinking about in regards to prayer thinking about our call as a church there was once a group of um, American pastors who visited the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London this was Charles Spurgeon's church this was in the mid to late 1800s this was like a a 5,000 person church the mega church before mega churches were a thing you know And they asked Spurgeon, what is the secret of your success? And he escorted them down to the lower parts of the church into a room where there were something between three and four hundred people praying. And he says, this is the secret of our success. What is it with these 
300, 400 who were praying. They believed that they were part of a bigger story and that they had a role in it. They were like the servants of Elisha. Once the, the king of Syria heard that you know, Elisha was advising the, the king of Israel and helping him to escape over and over again, and when the king of Syria heard this, he went and surrounded the city where Elisha was staying and surrounded it with an army of chariots and horses. And the servant of Elisha panicked. And he, he was afraid and he told Elisha about this. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he would see. And the Lord opened his eyes and the servant saw surrounding the army that was surrounding them was another army with chariots of fire and horses of fire. It was the host of heaven. And in that moment, the servant of Elisha realized he was part of a much bigger story. And the people of Spurgeon's church had those eyes recognizing that in spite of what's happening here on earth, in spite of the things that we can see, there's a much bigger picture for us to get a hold of, and we have a role to play in that story. So let me ask you this. Feel free to respond verbally. We're kind of spread out in this room, but there's lots of empty seats, aren't there? Do you want to see those filled? Do you want to see a movement of God in our city? Do you believe that God can do it? Do you believe he'll do it without people praying? No. So you want to see a movement of God. He probably won't do it apart from prayer. So what are you going to do about it? Let me encourage you to make a plan. And I'm going to pray more is not a plan. <laughs> it's a wish. When are you going to pray? Where are you going to pray? How are you going to pray? Are you going to use the Lord's Prayer as a model? Some of the Psalms, some of Paul's prayers? How are you going to pray? With whom are you going to pray? What is going to be your rhythm of prayer? What is going to be your rhythm of retreat, of getting with the Father and praying? Prayer is our reminder that the story is bigger than the moments of our lives. And us walking in prayer is us walking into that story. I wonder if there's anyone here today, the kind of week that you've had or the kind of season that you're in, you recognize you're seeing the small picture and you feel like you're missing out on the big picture. You feel like maybe there's times where you're functioning more like an Epicurean. God's not hearing your prayers. I wonder if there's anyone in here like that today, and you want to set that aside. You want to come to him. So we want to have a time of invitation, a time of ministry, a time of prayer, and I want to say this. I, I always hesitate kind of giving these kind of invitations, but... And, and I'm not a dreamer of dreams, but last night I had a dream. And I want to trust that it's not merely my subconscious. <laughs> I had a dream last night that there were people 
praying here in front of the stage before I even got up to preach. I wonder if there's those who need to be liberated today. If you're so caught up in your story, your, your, whatever it is, with physical pain, struggles within relationships, things that are just simply making you slip in terms of your hope and you want a grasp of what that big story is, we want to invite you today. And so Mike's going to give instructions to the prayer team. Great word. Wow. I was kind of lost in the word there and I wasn't really ready to come up. So uh, sorry about the slight delay. As I was uh, listening to Chad and uh, we were praying before the service together with the prayer team, uh, this idea of getting focused on the small picture and missing the big picture kind of gripped me because so often I find that I do that. I get stuck in the, in the small thing. I kind of fixate on the small thing and I forget the big story of God's work in my life. And like Chad said, I, I think there probably are quite a lot of folks who are like that. So what is it that the Lord wants to do in this ministry time? The prayer team are going to be available. They're going to recruit other members of the congregation to help pray with you. But I think this is the word that kind of unlocks what it is that God wants to do today. Because as we are praying at the beginning, the Lord said this to me. They that wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. The reason that we get focused on the small thing is that we don't have a high enough perspective. And this morning, the ministry time is for those of you who are stuck right now in a particular set of circumstances. And the Lord is saying to you, you need to come. You need to have people stand with you to pray. And as you wait and pray, you will be renewed in your strength. And you will be lifted up on wings of eagles and you'll see the bigger picture. Amen? Anybody get a sense of that's what the Lord's saying right now? Okay, so the prayer team are going to start moving. If that's you, if the Lord is wanting to give you a bigger picture of what you're going through right now, then you start coming and we'll pray with you. Come on, let's get going.